0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's
1: time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity.
0: This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde.
1: Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. All right, as promised... I have Jeanette Finnicum on the line with me. Hey, good morning, Jeanette.
0: Good morning, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Uh, glad to have you on. And you know what? I, I, I neglected to, to ask this question before we went on, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you. Um, I, I know that uh, you have been very blessed and you have, uh, you have remarried in the last, uh, last little bit. Um, I think, though, for the sake of, of people knowing who you are and what we're talking about, you're okay if I refer to you as Jeanette Finnicum? Is that OK? Oh, yes. Okay.
0: absolutely.
1: <laughs> I just I don't want to muddy the waters. I don't want people to be confused. And that's that's actually one of the reasons why you and I are talking today. There's a fair amount of confusion out there over a recent newspaper headline that talks about how well a, a lawsuit involving uh, the shooting of Lavoie Finnicum has been dismissed. And that uh, that's a misleading headline. Help us understand how it's it's diverting us away from the truth.
0: You're so very right. It, the media has an agenda, and that is one to confuse the public and to make them believe things within their just 30 second headline, you know. And then when you read in the body of the article, you realize, oh, that's not the Finnicum lawsuit. That's not the wrongful death lawsuit of Lavoie Finnicum. That's the lawsuit for Shauna Cox and Ryan Payne. Their civil lawsuit was dismissed. I mean, they have a completely separate judge. It's in a completely different uh, uh, federal court than than where mine is being held.
1: Okay. So this it's important that people understand this because uh, you and your family are continuing to carry forward not only the message of freedom, but um, you are also seeking some accountability and, and some justice Ab- be served.
0: Absolutely. want accountability for the murder of Lavoie. We want we want the federal government to be held responsible for the lawless acts that they committed that day. And as testified to in a court of law by a federal trainer, a federal uh, trainer, there were multiple protocols on multiple levels that were broken that day. And so we need to be able to take our government to court, hold them accountable for the for the wrongful things that they could, did that day. And one, and most importantly, the murder of my husband, LaVoy Fennecone. He did not and was not afforded his due process. He did not get to go to court. He did not get to have a jury of his peers decide whether he was guilty or innocent. There was not even a warrant issued that day for any of the individuals that were involved. It wasn't issued until the following day. We need to hold our government accountable. They can't just act like the Gestapo, and that is what's happening in our country today. We need to we need to double check and, and recheck them. We need to hold them um, in the confines of which the Constitution set up. And that due process right is due to every single individual in this country.
1: Here, here. Now, it, I can't believe it's it's been um, it's it's coming up on four years since uh, since Lavoie was taken. Um how let me just ask you just right out how are you and your family holding up the strain has to be immense but i know that you've also been making the best of the situation are you are you guys doing okay
0: we're doing okay. Our our whole family has, you know, continued to live and move forward. You know, I, as in Lavoy's videos, when he talks, he's talking about how he has. He's fighting for the American citizen. He's fighting for the individual. He's fighting for his children and grandchildren. And I think at that time when he made that statement, he had 19 grandchildren. And we have 35 now. Holy cow. And so my children, I know, <laughs> my children are continuing to live their lives, and they are, but they are and continue to see justice made for their father's murder. And, and and when we do this in this court, this is the American people's lawsuit. It's not just the Finicum family. This due process right belongs to each one of us, and we need to ensure and, and and preserve it for everyone. And and of course, you know, my life it has not been the same since my husband was killed. Uh, It has not been the same. I have been on the road pretty much for almost four years. I continue, even though I'm remarried. I'm gone three weeks out of every month pretty much, and uh, uh, I am determined. I'm determined to see this thing through to the end, that I can say to myself that I did everything possible, everything um, that was afforded me, the, the legal option. I have done everything that I possibly can.
1: Now, I understand that since your um, wrongful death suit as uh, a civil lawsuit is still pending, there are probably some things on which you cannot comment, but, uh, you know, it seems to be taking an unusually long time. Is this normal for how such uh, suits proceed through, this, through the court system?
0: Um, I I find it a blessing brian because when i look back in the beginning i thought oh this i was so impatient i wanted to get going i wanted to make sure everything was filed and it just didn't turn out that way but i feel god's hand in all of the things that have happened in reference to this wrongful death case because ha- you know look at the first two years look what happened if i had filed my case right away we would not have known that Oregon, uh, the Oregon trial would have turned out with a not-guilty verdict. We would not have known that Nevada would have been dismissed with prejudice. All of that has huge ramifications for my case. Um, and so as everything continued to play out the way the Lord wanted it to play out, I did not file my wrongful death lawsuit case until July 25, 2018, two years after the murder of Lavoie. And so... It has been another year and a half that we have been preparing, and there have been a couple of del- delays. The Oregon State um, Attorney has cancer, and so they gave him uh, a six months delay just to have treatment. However, it is moving now. All the all the motions for dismissal have been turned into the judge as of September first. Our attorneys are. Um, working previously to to rebut them and to turn in their motions Uh, we have a couple of months to do that then the judge is going to look at the arguments and he is she is going to decide um, which cases will go forward I have over 15 defendants named in this this lawsuit and so she will decide who will go to trial and who she will dismiss and she's hinted around and I don't want to say but there's a couple of people that she's decided uh, openly you know voice that she didn't understand why they were named to begin with because they serve in the in office and and so there's a lot of things that we the American people need to do in the system to change some of the laws and the regulations uh, so that we can hold certain individuals accountable for the the wrongful acts that they commit while serving in office. Um, there's just a lot for us to do, isn't there
1: absolutely. And, and I love the fact that uh, although there have been a lot of tears of sorrow along the way, you and your family all seem to approach this with uh, there's a certain joy in what you're doing. In other words, uh, this this isn't just about, you know, we're going to we're going to get to, you know, vengeance here. Um, there's there's a larger purpose. And maybe I could have you speak to uh, if, if you could help people better understand that larger purpose. What, what would that purpose be?
0: well i 've tried to remember what Lavoy was doing and what he was and what he would talk to us about here at home personally and he was standing for the Constitution he was standing for the American people. The issue was property rights that he he took on personally um, but he was also he went up to support the Hammonds in reference to property rights, but his bigger mission was education and and helping people to understand how the Constitution um, affected them in their personal lives and, and and what did the Constitution say and what did it mean and and so those are some of the things that our family has kind of um Took on because I wanted to further what what Lavoie was interested in doing. That's why I partnered with Center for Self Governance, who teaches strategic civics, and um, and 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 so that is one of the missions that I have. But it has been a healing process for our family to to be continued in an active way in helping to bring uh, Lavoy's message. Uh, I know it has been for me. I know I still have more. More things to deal with, and uh, but it, it will come in time. But I, I am grateful for. The support and the love and the kindness that I've received from everyone across this country, because that has helped me personally so much, not become bitter and angry and and revengeful. You know, I mean, that really the American people, the love that they've shown our family, the outpouring of of sympathy and 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 help. Oh my goodness. I, After four years, you know, because I did have other battles, Brian, it's not just been the wrongful death lawsuit. I've had other battles along the way that I've had to have attorneys and I've had to, you know get my ranch back, so to speak, so to speak and, and my water rights insured, and, and just everything. It just There's been so much over the four years that the American people have stood right beside us, right beside me, and have been there to help carry me along, and I still appreciate that, and it's, it's kind of renewed my faith in humankind.
1: Okay, on that note, we're going to take a very quick commercial break. Jeanette Finicum is my guest. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about some of the things specifically that she and her family are doing to continue moving that torch forward. We'll be back on Loving Liberty right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I have Jeanette Finicum on the line with me today, and we're talking a little bit about uh, her family's wrongful death suit, which I guess a lot of people may have written off because they saw a headline. What lawsuit in Finicum shooting dismissed? And they think it's the it's uh, the one that his family has has filed. It's not. And so Jeanette is here with us today to help offer some clarification. Uh, Jeanette, something I wanted to to bring up was you and your family. You mentioned three months three weeks out of the month. You are on the road. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing and, and maybe what your family members are doing um, in, in that time where you're away from home.
0: Yes. Uh, Mark Herr, president for Center for Self-Governance, has produced a documentary series on Lavoie. It's called Lavoie, Dead Man Talking, and there are four episodes that go to that. It's a total of like five hours telling the story from 2013 when he writes his book, Only by Blood and Suffering, Regaining Lost Freedom, to the Time that He's Murdered. And basically, to the two weeks after, when um, when uh, 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 David Fry finally uh, finally uh, he finally gives himself up, and so that the documentary series goes for that continued um, time period, and it's wonderful because it really tells it from. Uh, Lavoie's own words, because we have over nine hours of YouTube videos to where he's speaking for himself. People aren't putting words in his mouth, and they're not able to describe him because he's describing himself, and he's live and in color. And I so appreciate the way that Mark has put this together. So we are traveling the country and have been since June of 2000. Um, I believe, 18, June of 2018, we premiered at the Red Pill Expo with Episode 1. And we have been traveling since. And so that is what I'm doing. I'm bringing the documentary series to the people who want to see it. They bring us out, and we have an event. And um, I'm able to sell Tara's book as well as LaVoy's book to raise funds for the wrongful death lawsuit. And we take donations. And so that's kind of how it it, works. What, what I've been doing for the last almost two years, year and a half.
1: Well, and I think that's productive use of your time. Um, one of the things I, I just I had the privilege of, of writing a column for a Southern Utah news source uh, earlier this week. And, and I, I wanted to, to, to write about Lavoie because I see that misinformation and, and it frustrates me. Um, you know, some people say, well, you just happened to swallow everything that Lavoy was selling, you know, hook, line and sinker. But at least I had the advantage of meeting the guy. I got to look him in the eye. I got to shake his hand and talk with him. And I feel like that gives me a little bit better understanding of who he was and what he stood for than the people who are just so hostile, having never met him or interacted with him personally in any way whatsoever.
0: I agree with you. They don't even know what the subject is about. They just know the. this is indicative of the 50-second headlines or the Twitter feed. They get the one-sentence description from the media, and then they go full borg on just that. They don't even open the article, most people. We just read the headlines, and then we're angry and mad, and we really don't research anything out. And I was so appreciative of your column. I was so appreciative of it because... It described I could see Lavoie as you were talking. It was amazing and it was so wonderful to see and hear him described as he truly was. And I so appreciate your, your article that you put out about Lavoie. You really captured him and it is because you know him. It is because you took the time to speak with the man. Um and, and this documentary series is a way for the American people to do the same thing. And after they watch episode one, they do. They they say, Wow, he was a decent guy. He was he made sense. He was able to articulate it calmly and respectfully and intelligently, his stance, and people could understand what he was saying. And they agreed with him. By the time they're done watching the videos, they agree with Slavoj and what he was standing for. And that's how powerful this documentary series is. And I it- so-
1: I'm sympathetic, by the way, to the people who who might be tempted to say, "Well, you know, uh, I don't really know, you know, that much about him." Um, I almost dismissed him myself, which was the point of the the column that I wrote when he when he contacted me and, and had a book that he was promoting. I was kind of like, eh, "I was right. lu- I was <laughs> lukewarm," but having been at Bundy Ranch on April twelfth uh, of 2014, when he mentioned, you know, I was there at Bundy Ranch too. I was like. Breaks went on. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> As I backed up. Hop in. Let's let's have a talk. And I'm so grateful. And and I can't believe how close I came to, to simply going, No, I really wouldn't be interested. But it turned out, you know, he's I I, I will say Lavoie is probably one of the most pivotal figures with whom my life has has intersected that I can think of. And and I wish more people could understand what uh, what I have come to understand about him and, and just what a, what a great man he was and 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 what was really inspiring him to take that stand
0: it was it was freedom it was the constitution he was trying to protect the constitution in its original form and and he talked about that often he he was as our children began to leave the nest he had more time (laughs) and he started to pay attention more to you know the news and we didn't we weren't tv watchers we we in fact, we got rid of our cable, but news started to become a little bit more important to him. And he was listening to the headlines and listening to the commentators on on Fox News and saying, "What the heck is going on with our con- country?" Right? And and he he heard the Bundys in the news a little bit. I think in two twelve, it was just kind of in passing. But he was so concerned about what was happening on so many different levels, not just property rights, but, you know, the news was just we could not understand where our country was headed or why it was headed in the way it was headed and why it was why the American people, we were doing nothing. And he said, Jeanette, I've got this idea of a book that will help, you know, teach about individualism versus collectivism, about family and God and country and how important it is for us to stand up for our civil rights. He says, it's a great story. And he was a great storyteller. It was fun to be in the room when he was telling the story of his childhood or something that he and his brothers did. It was wonderful to sit and listen to that. And so I said, sure. You know, we, we all got together and we kind of worked as a team to hold the fort down while he wrote that book. And that really was his first his first attempt at trying to bring uh, the message of liberty and freedom, and we need to work to keep and preserve that. And, and so when he was going out talking to anybody who would listen to him about, I just wrote a book, kind of like you, mm-hmm. you know, he, He would the, The property issue was a little bit more prevalent at that point. So here we are, he wrote the book in 213, but in 214 and 215 he's starting to get out there with his book, right? And so the Bundy issue is much more prevalent and in the news at that point, and he's already gone to the Bundy standoff. And so as he's going to promote his book in 215, he's continuing to talk about property rights and liberty and freedom and preserving the American Constitution. And so that's kind of how it went, it just went. In that direction so quickly, and I look back on it, I look back on it, and I think to myself, from the time that he wrote the book to the time that he was murdered, it was a very short three years. Yeah. A very short three years. It happened so quickly and his stand was over but i i and my my children have been determined not to lay the gauntlet down and his stand is not over cuz he left 12 children 35 grandchildren and a wife behind to help continue to carry that
1: well and i think that, a lot of people were were touched by what he had to say and that's that's something i reference in the column that i wrote uh, i was shocked at how many people came up to me in the weeks following his death who said, I heard Lavoy on your radio show, and I felt the power in what he was saying. And that's unusual. I've had a lot of guests over the years. I don't remember ever having people come up to me and say, I felt the power of what your guest was saying, especially as he was just calling on people to know what they stand for and to find that courage to stand.
0: I know, and I, I really feel that the Spirit of God was with him and in his words and how he was trying to teach the American people and sound and, and the alarm, so to speak. Um, my husband was very faithful to his God, and uh, he did everything he did in prayer, and um, I'm very proud of him, and I'm very proud of the way he stood, and I'm very proud to be his, be his wife.
1: Jeanette and we I'm
0: are for the oh, sorry we're, we're up
1: against the clock here is there a website where people can go to to stay up with what you're doing
0: you bet one cowboys and and there you can find uh, my calendar for where we are uh, to attend uh, LaVoy Dead man talking or to buy a book or to donate to the legal fund which we really appreciate thank you God
1: bless you and your family thanks Jeanette
0: God bless you Brian thank you
1: Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Glad you could join us. Hey, it was great to catch up with uh, Jeanette Finnicum in the uh, first half of the hour. Now, I'm going to be sharing some stuff with you coming up here um, shortly that uh, is probably going to make some people, uh, how can I put this, uncomfortable, maybe just a little bit angry. But uh, I'm going to share with you some thoughts on uh, what we have lost or how 9-11 solidified the destruction of our freedoms. My goal here is not just, you know, to make you mad and, you know, get you all uh, bent out of shape. The goal here is instead to hopefully get you thinking about uh, what exactly is at stake here. And, and this is hard to do. It's a, it's a really emotional day for a lot of people. And I know everywhere you turn, the news coverage is going to be somber, you know, remembrances, flags everywhere, celebration of heroes, you know. Um, it's, you know, no, no police officer or fireman is going to have to buy himself a drink tonight. I guarantee that. Any, any of them walk into a bar, somebody else will buy him the drink, just as their way of saying thanks. Probably the same thing for, for members of the military. Now, having said that, There are some hard truths that we really should be paying attention to. And I'm going to share some of those with you, courtesy of Jacob Hornberger. Again, my goal here is not just to raise your blood pressure, but to help bring into focus some of the things that we have lost in the uh, not just the emotionalism, but the the nationalism. And I mean, the kind of toxic nationalism that has arisen out of 9-11. When all that shock and sorrow turned to anger, we allowed our government to do some really strange and, and previously unthink, unthinkable things. And it's costing us dearly. So here's what J- Jacob Hornberger says. 9-11 solidified the destruction of our freedom. He says the 9-11 attacks not only killed thousands of Americans, they also led to America's forever wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iraq. Syria, Libya, Yemen, Iran, and elsewhere, which have brought about the deaths of thousands of other Americans and millions of foreigners. But he says the 9-11 attacks did more than that. They also fortified the U.S. government as a national security state, which solidified the destruction of the freedom of the American people. Now, if you want a working definition for what is a national security state, here's how Jacob Hornberger describes it. He says it's a type of governmental structure that has an enormous permanent military establishment or military intelligence establishment. In the case of the United States, that means the Pentagon, the vast military military industrial complex, foreign military bases, the CIA and the NSA. It also means power. And I mean enormous power, not only for the overall government, but also within the governmental structure itself. So to place things in a general context, Egypt is a national security state. So are China, Cuba and Russia. And so is the United States. Now, the thing we have to remember here is it wasn't always that way. This is why those of us who have studied the founding of this nation and the principles and practices on which it was founded recognize that we are seriously departing what made America, America. We were founded as a limited government republic. That's the opposite of a national security state. No Pentagon, no vast military industrial complex, no foreign military bases, no CIA, no NSA, just a relatively small army. That's the way the framers and our American ancestors wanted it. The last thing they wanted was the type of governmental structure under which we Americans live today. And Jacob Hornberger says, in fact, if the proponents of the Constitution had said to the American people after the Constitutional Convention that the Constitution was going to bring into existence a national security state, they would have died laughing, thinking it was a big joke, especially considering they just freed themselves from an oppressive state. That being the monarchy of King George the third. Once they realized it wasn't a joke, they'd have summarily rejected the deal and continued operating under the Articles of Confederation, a third type of governmental system under which the federal government's powers were so few and so weak that the federal government hadn't even been given the power to tax. (sighs) Sorry, just thinking about the good old days. The revolutionary change, he says, though, occurred after World War II. And I think his explanation is possibly one of the best that I have ever encountered. So listen up. Where did this national security state come from? Well, Jacob Hornberger points out it was it was after World War II. Although the war against Nazi Germany had just ended in victory. U.S. officials told Americans, unfortunately, we can't rest. That was because, they said, the U.S. now faced a foe that was arguably more dangerous than Nazi Germany. That foe being the Soviet Union, which ironically had served as America's partner and ally during the war. U.S. officials maintained that America now faced a vast post-war communist conspiracy to take over the world. Including the United States. And this conspiracy was based in Moscow, Russia. Yes, that Russia. And what our officials told us was that the only way to prevent this type of conspiracy from succeeding was to convert the U.S. government to the same type of governmental system that the Soviets had, which was a national security state. Continuing as a limited government republic, they said, would almost certainly result in a defeat for America and a communist takeover of our nation. So I'm trying to decide, does that just show that uh, how, how little faith they had in the principles and practices on which this nation was founded? Or did they understand those principles and... and still reject them. It's hard to tell. But that's how we ended up with this omnipotent government. That's how we ended up with a national security state type of governmental system, along with all the dark side powers that come along with it. Our officials told the American people, hey, we want to keep you safe, but we're going to have to do some kind of nasty things, things that you would not sleep better at night knowing that they were being done. So here's the deal. We'll protect you. You keep your eyes half shut and don't ask too many questions. And we'll do this out of sight, out of mind. But we need the power to protect you and and essentially engage in the same kind of dirty tricks and spy work and so forth that our adversaries are engaging in. We just promise to keep it out of sight so that you don't have to be inconvenienced by, you know, any troublesome feelings of conscience, for instance. And that's how we ended up with a government that that claims the power to assassinate, to kidnap, to torture, to engage in regime change operations, to impose sanctions on people, embargoes, invasions, wars of aggression, occupations, coups, secret surveillance, indefinite detention, secret prison camps, military tribunals, denial of due process of law out-of-control federal spending and debt, in large part owing to the ever-increasing budgets for that national security establishment. In other words, all of the things that one would have expected from the Soviet Union were now part and parcel of the arsenal of freedom wielded by the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Now, something to keep in mind here is that none of this was authorized by the Constitution. Well, why does that matter? We've got to stay safe. Well, okay, but remember... That the Constitution is the charter that called the federal government into existence. And U.S. officials have always maintained, well, now the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. Continuing to follow it, they said, would mean certain defeat at the hands of the Reds. And so they persuaded us that you need to let us slip the restraints of the Constitution. We need to abandon constitutional niceties to save America. And Hornberger says implicit in all the Cold War hoopla was that if the Cold War were ever to end, Americans could have their limited limited government republic back. Of course, U.S. officials never thought for a moment that that would happen. Whoops. Hey, where went the Berlin Wall 30 years ago? The national security state was a racket that was supposed to go on forever. But in 1989, that racket suddenly and unexpectedly came to an abrupt end. Financially broke, uninterested in continuing the Cold War, the Soviet Union declared an end to it, dismantled itself, and brought Soviet troops home from East Germany and from Eastern Europe. Well, there you have it. There was the end of the Cold War, right? That should have resulted in the restoration of America's limited government republic, but it didn't. Having lost its official Cold War enemy, the U.S. National Security Establishment found a new one. By going into the Middle East and embarking on a killing spree, especially in Iraq, where it killed hundreds of thousands of people from 1991 through 2003. The victims, including Iraqi children, hundreds of thousands of them. And when U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. under the Bill Clinton regime, Madeleine Albright, was asked by 60 Minutes... Whether the deaths of half a million Iraqi children were worth it, she responded that while the issue was a hard one, the deaths were in fact worth it. By it, she meant regime change in Iraq. Now, there's more here, and we're going to pick up on it here, just the other side of these uh, these commercial messages. If you are hearing your pulse thundering in your ear, I'm sorry. I'm sharing with you some truths that are painful perhaps unpopular and on today of all days most certainly should not be spoken but I think they need to be spoken nonetheless we'll be back after these messages Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. And if I'm a little unpopular right now, I understand it because I'm I'm talking about some stuff here on the anniversary of 9-11 that uh, perhaps some people would feel better if I were to put this off, you know, for a better time. I don't know when would be a better time, but I'm sharing with you this article from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, about how 9-11 solidified the destruction of our freedom. At the hands of the national security state. We had been transforming into a national security state following World War II. But it was the U.S. government's response to 9-11 that really solidified what that security state could become. And he talks about how in 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, and then just a couple of years later, the uh, Soviet Union dissolved... Instead of the Cold War being over and our limited government constitutional republic being returned to the American people. The military or the national security state went searching for a new foe. And it found one starting with Saddam Hussein and starting with the first Gulf War. And then spreading on from there. He reminds us that Madeleine Albright, when asked if the deaths of half a million Iraqi children were worth The efforts for regime change in Iraq? She said, yeah, well, it's a hard issue. The deaths were worth it. Which is kind of the official way of saying, yeah, it sucks to be you, but uh, as long as it's not me, we're probably okay." Now, Hornberger says not surprisingly, the U.S. mass killing of Iraqis, along with its decision to station U.S. troops near the Muslim religion's holiest lands, along with the unconditional military support of the Israeli government, led to terrorist retaliation. Beginning with the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center, the attack on the USS Cole, the attacks on the U.S. embassies in East Africa, and then the 9-11 attacks. Well, why didn't somebody say something? Why didn't somebody say something? Well, actually, there were a number of people saying something. Pat Buchanan among them. In fact, during the presidential campaign of 2000, keep in mind a full year before the events of 9-11, Pat Buchanan asked the following question about the high price of empire and the U.S. government's imperial behavior around the world. He said, how can all our meddling not fail to spark some horrible retribution? Have we not suffered enough from Pan Am 103 to the World Trade Center? He means the 1993 bombing to the embassy bombings in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. Not to know that interventionism is the incubator of terrorism. Or will it take some cataclysmic atrocity on U.S. soil to awaken our global gamesmen to the going price of empire? And at that point, Pat Buchanan asked, you know, what, what are we going to do? He said, America today faces a choice of destinies. We can choose to be a peacemaker of the world or it's policemen who goes about night sticking troublemakers until we, too, find ourselves in some bloody brawl we cannot handle. So, yeah, the excuse of, well, somebody should have said something. They did. But people didn't want to listen. And maybe it's fitting, you know, guys like John Bolton, who uh, either resigned or was shown the door, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> but uh, he and his neoconservative conservative cabal strongly believe that it is not only, you know, America's capability, but it is our prerogative to go out there and remake the world by force. And that interventionism is what sparks the kind of murderous retribution that we saw carried out on 9-11. Now, that doesn't mean anybody who died in the Twin Towers or at the Pentagon or on Flight 93 deserved what happened to them. But to sit there and to pretend that it happened because the terrorists hated our freedoms and wanted to see our freedoms go away, well, if, if that's the case, they got what they wanted. And unfortunately, we have turned into kind of a garrison state here at home. Jacob Hornberger points out how the 9-11 attacks led to the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, followed by the interventions in Syria, Libya, Yemen, and elsewhere, which necessarily entailed a fortification and strengthening of America's national security state form of governmental structure. Now, they also led to the Patriot Act, which eviscerated the Fourth Amendment, as well as to a formalized assassination program, including the power to assassinate Americans to torture people, including Americans, to indefinitely detain American citizens and others as enemy combatants in the forever war on terrorism, to conduct secretive surveillance schemes over the American people and others, and to conduct intrusive searches at airports through the TSA, to impose more deadly sanctions and embargoes on foreign citizens, and to initiate more coups and other regime change operations. And it all adds up to the destruction of American liberty, to which Jacob Hornberger reminds us there's only one way to get our freedom back, and that is by dismantling the national security state and restoring our limited government republic. See, it's hard to remember, especially if you're, you know, kind of thinking back to what was I doing? 18 years ago today, right about now, a lot of us were just glued to the television, our jaws hanging open in disbelief. It was the perfect opportunity for politicians to step up and to, to foist on us plans that they had been sitting on the table for years. They just needed the right Outrage, The right emotional leverage to get us to abandon our our sense of, of right and wrong and to go with whatever it takes to feel safe. And every time we have sent troops abroad to yet another foreign military adventure, the question remains, well, now tell me again, how is this affecting our liberties? Ostensibly, that's what they're doing, right? They're fighting to keep us free. And yet... It seems like every time we send those troops out, we're less free here at home. By the way, I'm going to be interviewing this afternoon on uh, I I do the uh, one o'clock show from uh, one to two p.m. Mountain Time on KTALK 1640. We'll have the podcast posted up for this as well later this afternoon. But I'm going to be interviewing Jared Labor, who is uh, part of the uh, Young Voices group He is also their uh, expert and senior contributor on defense priorities, and he's going to talk about Afghanistan. What exactly has happened there? Because it did not take long for the U.S. government to go into Afghanistan after we demanded you give us Osama bin Laden or at least enough recognizable pieces of him that we can identify him because we want this guy. And the government of Afghanistan at the time was like, whoa, hold on, not so fast. Where's your proof? And the response was, well, we're going to invade. We're going to come and get him. Ostensibly, they got him, but I'm still I'm still doubtful of the official story of, well, we shot him in the face and dumped his body out at sea. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. Ties up some loose ends. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I believe my government just because it sometimes uh, exaggerates. So for 18 years, we've had troops in Afghanistan. Troops are still dying there, by the way. And just this last week, there was talk about bringing the Taliban to the table. To discuss how can we go ahead and uh, I'm going to put this in in terms that I, I would use to describe it. How can the U.S. sit down and declare victory and then, you know, come home? It's not a war to be won. It's an occupation. And that's you don't win an occupation. You just simply choose when to come home. We'll talk about how what happened last week where there was there was talk about, you know, bringing senior Taliban members over to Camp David to meet with President Trump. And then there was this bombing and a U.S. service person was killed and it's, yeah, the waters are muddy. But uh, Jared Labor should have some great insights for us again. That will be in the Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde Wednesday afternoon edition coming up this afternoon at 1 o'clock Mountain Time on KTALK 1640 in Salt Lake City. Look, I don't have the answers as to how do we fix all this. Some of these things I really believe are, are going to require um, they're going to require the same providential dynamic that was present at the founding of this country. But if that's going to happen, if we want to be the kind of people to, to whom God would extend His hand and, and bless us and prosper us and protect us, as I believe He did, the founding generation. We've got to be, we've got to be the kind of people who deserve that kind of help. It's not enough to snap our fingers and demand, hey, you, come protect us. There's going to be some humility involved, and there's going to have to be a willingness to to put things of substance over political fads. And I guess that's going to start best at the individual level, because it ain't going to happen from the top down. Thanks for joining us today for Loving Liberty. Stand by. CSC Talk Radio with Beth Ann is on the way next. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion.
0: This is the Loving Liberty
1: Radio Network.